I've started recording. Welcome back to Private Practice Podcast. After an indeterminate length of time since the last time we recorded, and potentially only minutes since you listened to the last episode. Hello, listener. You're Dan Brown in London, and hello. <laughs> and you are James Hall somewhere in Europe. I'm in Marseille. Lovely. Um, so, hello, James. How are you? Um, I mean, how am I right now? How am I today? How am I this week? How have I been since the last time we spoke? It, it's just a whole catalogue of chaos when people ask me how are you when I haven't seen them for a long time I mean how are you and your uh, because uh, oh sorry carry on no I'm just gonna say I mean yeah okay cool I mean we can choose to answer that question however we want when someone asks us that's the joy of being an adult really um of being a human you can choose how you answer a question so let's try it again you can you can choose any one of those replies hi James how are you I mean exactly the kind of mood that the listener wants me to be in which is um jolly enthusiastic positive and i have unconditional positive regard for you the listener fantastic that's really good to hear i mean it's been such a long time since you and i have been able to get together here in the virtual world of podcasts and talk things through um what's been going on for you i spent Three months in dubious status with a visa overstay in Casablanca and then managed to get out, which was quite amusing because I was stood in a police station in a dusty suburb where um, I had to explain that my ongoing (laughs) tourism had not ended. <laughs> and, and I was surrounded by people who wanted to stay in the country and I and uh who very much did not look like me and there I was about a metre taller than anyone in the middle of this crowd um asking to can I leave please <laughs> okay, can you let me out of your country I don't like it here um okay cool and how did that go well, the person behind the desk just shouted at everyone equally, but processed the paperwork nevertheless, so it was fine. Nice, nice. And they let you out. So now you're out of Morocco and into Marseille, enjoying the beautiful weather, enjoying the Frenchness of it all. Yes, and I actually had a social event at the weekend for the first time in a year. Bloody hell. What, you saw friends? Yes. I made them climb a mountain in 35-degree heat at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. (laughs) Needless to say, they won't be visiting you again. (laughs) I just wanted to test if there was a mountain high enough (laughs) or a valley low enough to keep them from me. (laughs) Did you you take them to a river to have a swim afterwards? Well, uh, we we went to... Marseille is one of the... uh, The reason Marseille is one of my favourite places in the world is because it has a national park within the city as in you don't like for example if you're in um i don't know manchester and you want to go to the lake district you have to go to the lake district whereas if you're in marseille and you want to go to 
the um, uh, the Calonk National Park. It's just at the end of a bus line. Yeah, you've told me about it before. I, I remember you love the city of Marseille for its many quirky juxtapositions of um, luxury and grime, of dirtiness and um, squalor next to um, prime real estate and beautiful views. And, of course, I remember you maybe getting stuck in a rainy pathway on a bicycle. Was that Marseille? Oh, no, I got my foot wet in Montpellier. Oh, yeah, that's a great story about when you got your foot wet. Um, maybe we can revisit that story one day. Yeah, no, I remember you loved Marseille. Um, drug dealers at the train stations surrounded by police with automatic weapons. Yeah. Marseille is the only city in France that has extreme poverty in the city centre to to the extent that it is here. Rather than being absolute as if I'm as if I know all the statistics in my head and I'm from some kind of French um institution that measures things accurately and appropriately just from uh just from from chatting to people who know some stuff about this and from my own observations unlike most cities in France where the city center doesn't have derelict buildings everything's been renovated everything's expensive there isn't a wasteland or a derelict building left in general um there aren't streets with people living in poverty etc there's there's only gentrification until you get out into the suburbs and that's where the deprivation is in marseille there is complete dereliction collapsed buildings um and extreme poverty in the city center and and it's always been the case that, mo- that f- people from other parts of France were w- w- were likely to have considered Marseille as being some sort of like almost third world country that they never visit. They've never been here. Why would they ever come here? They're never going to come here. And now it's the it's kind of firstly um, since 2013, there's been a whole load of improvements to the city, but also people come here now people have been coming here now for the first time maybe because of covid because they just wanted to get out of paris but couldn't get out of france maybe because it's the only place left in the country where you can get cheap accommodation in the city center or whatever for whatever reasons um but i mean like just from my own colloquial experience i've found countless people on boats and buses overhearing conversations where people have basically come from Paris, it's their first time in Marseille, they're surprised that it's not what they thought it was and all that sort of thing. So I wouldn't be surprised if over the next 20 years there's mega gentrification, the whole city centre gets done up, a whole load of money comes pouring in, the old guard is replaced with the new guard and then finally there will be nowhere left in France um, that's kind of an investment opportunity. (laughs) Fantastic. So are you going to buy there now? I should do because you can buy a reasonably decent apartment here for about €60,000 and interest rates are so low that with a mortgage, the bank basically pays you to be a landlord. So why don't you? Because I would then have to be an English overseas landlord to people living in an apartment in Marseille and I don't have a French bank account and 
I would have to negotiate with a French bank to get a mortgage in cobbled together French. I could just see kind of farcical situations down that path. I think you'd be shooting yourself in the foot to not do it. Marseille, <laughs> I love it. It seems to be almost equidistance between Barcelona and Genoa. Uh, great location. Just over from um, Morocco. Obviously, you've got the whole of that thingamabob sea in between. It looks like a perfect location for jet-setting around Europe, which is surely what everyone wants nowadays. A perfect location for jet-setting around Europe and Africa, anyway. Um, I'll leave you to think about that. So, Private Practice Podcast. Where has it been, James? Well, how have you been? Oh, that's a long story. We'll come back to that one later. This is, this is a, this is a catch-up episode. Nobody needs to know or wants to know about that. Well, I mean, can't we, can, I, can we not at least say that one of the reasons that we haven't recorded for a long time is um, because you've had a problem with your bowels? No, we can't say that. That, that wouldn't okay. be exactly true. I think there was a definite um, distancing because both of us had our own things going on. And although you definitely would have made time to record, I didn't really have enough headspace to do anything other than what I was doing in my life, which was moving house, changing jobs, starting work in a whole new workplace in an entirely new work environment. And then I had a few... Um, ongoing um, and acute health issues which just got in the way of me really being able to think about anything other than myself um, so yes if you like it was all about the gutsy bowels getting in the way of recording a nice clean podcast about mental health and in the time that we've been off Prince Harry has started a podcast about mental health so does that mean that we're completely redundant no, I doubt it. I mean, <laughs> I haven't listened to Prince Harry's podcast and I'm sure it'd be very good, um, but I'll have to have a listen before I can directly compare it and and think about how or if we will now be in competition with uh, the previous HRH, Prince Harry. And uh, what else has happened since the start of the year? I'm sure there was something... Actually, I think, no, the Prince Harry thing was the thing that I was going to say. That's why there was something. I mean, that's the big news, isn't it? That's the news on everyone's lips. Prince, Prince Harry started a podcast about mental health. Uh, well, it's only in relation to... <laughs> it's, it's only in relation to the listener right now thinking, well, I could just listen to someone who's friends with Oprah Winfrey having basically a more informed discussion than what I'm listening to right now. So um, I'm just slightly concerned that we need to up our game. Yeah, possibly. I mean, I, I, don't, I, I don't know why, how or why Prince Harry is qualified to talk about mental health other than, of course, you know, having mental health uh, issues himself, as he has recently come out in the press and saying, but um, OK... Uh, exactly. That's what. That's just what we need. That's um, you know, mental health nurse Dan Brown slams privileged. Who does he think he is? <laughs> for like, like really, um, going for the diss. Ex Prince Harry, 
uh, for his stupid mental health podcast, What Does He Know? Dot, 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 question mark. Okay, there we go. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, but I guess if you've been like thrown out of the royal family and you need some money coming in somehow, I bet you anything he gets sponsors instantly just because of who he is, you know. I see you've lost your unconditional positive regard towards him. I don't know if this is a bitterness towards his rivalry in the mental health podcast marketplace. I don't know if this is a um, resentment of the privilege of being in a royal family. Or maybe just because he's an international sex symbol, you're jealous of that. I mean, there's all sorts Wait. of things, but you, you've definitely lost your unconditional positive regard towards Prince Harry because, I mean, I was being a bit tongue-in-cheek, but really, we should be acting on our words and saying that um, there's plenty of space for anyone who wants to have conversations about mental health. We welcome all of them, and I'm sure Prince Harry's podcast is wonderful without any uh, sly, under-the-table shade about what the hell does he know, and um, it's all right for him, but I guess he needs some money now that he's no longer getting... Um, bankrolled by the, uh, the, the 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 institution of his family. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that I did say anything that sly. I think I was quite. O- <laughs> I think I was quite open. I just said, surely he'll need to make some money now. He's been thrown out of the royal family, and uh, I imagine that he would get sponsors really easily. Like, what, is there? I don't think there's something too underhand about saying that, is there? Isn't that isn't that isn't that a fair enough comment on what is probably going on? I was thinking more about the what does he know about mental health comment. Oh, did I say that? Yes, that's not very nice of me. <laughs> is it? <laughs> very unkind of me. Very unkind of me. I I'm sorry, Harry. I mean, your lordship. Um, I, I'd be to be honest, be very interested in listening to you know how he is. What his take on on uh, mental health podcasting is, and um, I think I'll become a regular listener and maybe even offer feedback, comments on his Instagram page, things like that. You know, uh, I, I'm pro. I'm all for it. Yeah, change my mind. I've changed my mind and I've changed my tune. I'm pro Prince Harry. I wonder if the listener knows that that is as shallow a promise as. Uh many of the things that you claim you're going to do. What? No, I mean, yeah, maybe. Um, I'm just wondering if that's something that we could talk about in terms of... I think we did discuss at some point talking about things that you need to work on about yourself in this podcast because it did very, very, very originally, years ago, I think about eight years ago now, originate with me bringing my problems and even though they were meant to be fake ones I ended up bringing real ones and we've never we've we've basically I'm just going to say we've never really got to your problems no no that was that was never the agreement uh talking about my problems no now I'll go to a professional for that thank you very much James (laughs) okay so so Harry's podcast is called armchair expert no that's someone else's podcast and he had prince harry as a guest talking about the podcast and that's how i knew about (sighs) right i was listening to that very episode as i actually went through the mountains of morocco on a on on an atlas train god there's so many prince harry podcasts i just can't find prince harry's podcast god Uh, any idea what it's called james Uh, he does it with oprah winfrey so that might 
narrowed down the search. He does it with Oprah Winfrey? Yeah. Oh, my... I think so. God. Uh, Either that or she was the first guest. I don't know. Oh, well. Well, I might have to come back to this. Anyway, so what do you want to talk about today, James? Uh, well, I feel like you don't want to talk about your problems, so let's go back to our actual plan. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. <laughs> and also, so when I was kind of looking back over things since the last time we recorded, it's not just to be pedantic, nor is it to just have hours of chat about everything that's happened over the past year. It's only in terms of anything that might be relevant to either things that we've talked about or the ongoing change in attitudes towards things like mental health within the wider population. Yes. And also you work on the front line of that kind of thing. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so what, what do you... Sorry, I got distracted by Prince Harry. I'm just going to turn this off. Bear with me, I'm coming back to your face. Yes, say that again, James. Sorry about that. Carry on. Just since we've since we've last been recording, um, is there anything else? Because we did we did an episode about conspiracy theories, which yeah. was looking at something that was massive that, that was a relatively. Well, it's not uh, conspiracy theories are never new, but the the if, let's say there was a conspiracy theory bubble that was having an effect of it being a bubble on people's mental health. And since then, I feel like there's the, the the reason I bring up Prince Harry's podcast is not just for is not just to see what you would say in reaction to that. It was more the fact that all over the place, what we're doing is just everywhere. Do you think so? I think so. Do you not think so? Maybe I don't have my finger on the pulse um, like you do, but um, I, I guess you know, mental health is becoming a more openly spoken about topic. I think the relevance of it in a post-COVID world is um, is growing. I, I think that, you know, the, the, the rebound pandemic or the rebound of the pandemic will be a psychological and mental health-related um, kind of second-wave um, pandemic because... Everyone, pretty much everyone now knows what it's like to be scared, um, what it's like to be trapped and what it's like to fear for your life. And, and I think it became very, very real for a lot of people, whereas before they were just concepts that you could kind of think about unless you'd really experienced direct trauma. I feel like the world has gone through a shared trauma um and for the majority of people obviously not everyone this is going to have um repercussions for their mental health and their psychological well-being so i'm guessing there probably are more media outlets and more podcasts and more um social commentary and more journalists talking about mental health now would be my guess but i'd you know i I, I work it, so I don't necessarily spend lots of my time scrolling the internet looking for um, mental health-related content. I suppose what prompted it for me was um, when I was talking uh, to my mum on the phone, she said that she'd seen someone on the news who was interviewed because 
she was an influencer who had gone to Dubai um, despite travel restrictions, claiming that she w- it was a, it was an essential trip. And when in the interview, and according to the impression that I received down the phone, she. Uh, she turned to the camera and said something like, um, "I had to come here. I was doing it for my mental health." And so that's that's my that's a little bit of my mum's uh, attitude to uh, people's accents and her uh, lofty views with judgment on their position on the social scale. But yeah, also, yeah. it was quite funny. <laughs> yeah. Um... I guess that I guess you know that maybe there's a a common understanding um growing about the need to do things for your mental health um <laughs> and you know I'm sure there's a lot of top 10 lists and uh five best self-care practice um pointers and the most important books you can read to live your best life I'm sure there's loads more than that nowadays than there was 10 years ago but I think from someone who started working in 2000 in mental health services, uh, you know, I'm seeing it grow exponentially. So uh, I, I don't know whether it's it's come. It hasn't really come as I've been watching this steady incline of um, um, accessible information as well as accessible disinformation, um, which appears to be sort of this um, working understanding of mental health um, and self-care. So, yeah, I've, I've seen that began, going on for years. Whether it's increased massively over the last 12 months, I don't know, but I guess it probably is picking up pace in terms of like accessibility and um, scope of content around mental health. But I don't know if, if this is something that you would agree with. But certainly, for 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 years, in my whole lifetime, for example, especially in um, America, self help books have been just about like you go into a, a an American bookshop, and about seventy five percent of the shop is self help books. So they're obviously. Um, the sort of the biggest chunk of the non-fiction market in probably the biggest market of books in the world and so it's it, there's nothing new in terms of people having the idea of oh I know what sells telling people that they can improve their life and so it's not a surprise that podcasts and blogs and whatever else do the same thing especially given the fact that um, it's a current event that people are, have been have spent a year or two quite frequently trapped at home and in situation and in stressful situations and things like that. But I don't I don't know um, that any self help, whether it's a book written in the nineteen eighties or Prince Harry's latest podcast episode, or anything that we've ever done. Um, I don't know that any of that is a substitute for a, a direct interaction with a person who is paying attention to you and your problems rather than you try, sort of like assuming that your problems will go away if you learn all about self-help. Yeah, no, uh, I'd probably agree. I mean, there's, there's lots of um, uh, clinical research evidence to suggest that 
um, bibliotherapy, as they call it, it can be really useful, a really useful adjunct to um, one-to-one therapy. And for some people, potentially um, with the milder range of, you know, mental health-related symptoms, you know, like um, low mood, mild anxiety, um, um, overly concerned about certain issues, health worries... um, potentially overeating, a little bit of uh, excessive or binge drinking, these these kind of things, um, um, excessive worry, not sure if I put that in the list there. Those kind of things can be helped with, um, you know, usually CBT-based self-help, um, book reading um, and following along with the activities. But I do think if you've got more complex or more severe problems or your problems go on for a longer period of time than maybe you know, historically the last six months um, or maybe the last year and a half if we're looking at the COVID period, then I think probably talking to a therapist is primarily the most useful and important uh, tool in your kit to to improve your psychological well-being. Um, I'm sure podcasts help and they obviously help with the, the um, mental health or the psychological or emotional literacy that you need in order to be able to understand um, how to use therapy and how to um, beat some of the problems that might be um, taking a toll on you psychologically. Well, okay, then for the for for this podcast, I don't mean just this episode. I mean private practice podcast. Yes. Um, um, I don't know if you feel for example nostalgic about the days when I was in Paris and I'd uh, read a little book about trauma or perversion or something like that and we would have a uh, an individual topic each time or if you're nostalgic for the days when we went through the flow book chapter by chapter because uh, the last thing that we did um, comparing looking at Carl Rogers and initially looking at his ideas and in, in part one of the two-part thing and then in part two criticizing them oh no not criticizing crit- looking at them critically right so the f- first one was just uh, looking at them non-critically <laughs> and the second one was looking at them critically but I find this tension between power relations between people and no word like uh, humanist laws <laughs> seems appropriate. Like the humanist laws of living, the 10 humanist laws of living. Can you say this better than me? Probably. Everything Carl Rogers has to say, everything Machiavelli has to say, um, neither of them is right or wrong. And in the last episode, I was very confused because I, th- I was basically saying, well, everything to, everything's kind of like Machiavellian just sounds correct when you hear it and it's completely at odds with everything Carl Rogers and humanist psychology talks about which also sounds equally correct how can these two things that are totally incompatible both be correct it was it was quite an autistic question and you answered it very well but I, I think there's plenty more in like I, I don't think that it's it's the sort of thing where you just give an answer and that's it. Nothing more to think about in, for the rest of your life. 
No, I, I, I absolutely agree. And, and I think horses for courses is really relevant here. Um, it, depending on what situation you're in is what kind of, you know, psychological well-being and how would I put it? Um, mental health related uh, understanding and activities and techniques you might want to use to deal with a specific problem within a specific context. So saying that one thing is good and one thing is bad is just it's just oversimplifying it. Um, and actually, you know, in essence, that's one of the major um, learnings, one of the major teachings, learnings, both, I guess, for for a positive understanding of mental health is that if you see things in black and white, if you see things as either good or bad and you are unable to see the shades of grey, what's in between, um, uh, the variety of perspectives of seeing those same situations or experiences or thoughts or feelings, if you are unable to see them as either good or bad, right or wrong, then you will struggle to maintain a healthy mindset. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying quite carefully not to just say positive mindset, because I don't think it is all about always having a positive mindset. Um, sometimes thinking negatively um, around some issues, if you're able to then see that that's one, one way of looking at something, you know, classic glass half empty, half full, actually glass is both half full and half empty, three different ways of seeing the same object. Uh, and if you want to get all metaphysical on it, is asking yourself, is it really a glass and is the glass there at all? Are you a glass dreaming you're a man or are you a man dreaming you're a glass? That kind of stuff. So the idea that something is good or bad or, um, or, or light or dark or positive or negative is, you know, that's a really at the, at the core of really powerfully positive, powerful, positive understanding of psychological well-being. Actually, I'm glad you said that about going to the abs absurd length of quantum physics and am I glass looking at a man? Because pretty much every conversation I've had on this topic that has not been recorded over the past year has come, has boiled, every single one has boiled down to exactly the same thing and it's to do with relativism. And both me and the person that I was always talking to, neither of us are inclined to to go down the route of everything is relative like there's no such thing as good or bad um everything can be viewed from infinite perspectives none of them are right you shouldn't be judgmental the extreme of that is i think ridiculous for the following reason you cannot live your life without judgment because you won't ever make a decision because otherwise you wake up in the morning and you have to make a judgment about what is the most important thing to do. And if you can't decide between the millions of things available to you as to whether or not they are more or less important than going to the toilet, then you will eventually find that your bladder explodes or whatever happens if, uh, if you consider a million things without going to the toilet. So you make a judgment. You say, the most important thing for me to do right now is go to the toilet. And then you just start doing other things. And with every single decision you make, you make a judgment. And so to say that everything is relative um, 
and therefore and, and, and never be judgmental is I think a ridiculous statement but then at the same time you can go all the way to the other extreme and judge everything as being absolute everything is, 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 is um, what you refer to as black and white thinking that's, uh, that's also completely unhelpful so there are si- situations where a certain amount of questioning of unconditional positive regard in the sense of looking at someone else and valuing their thought on a matter that's different to yours as opposed to just thinking that there's one right thought, everyone else has to be wrong and therefore there's the conclusion and you just need to go about putting people right unless you're wrong and then they need to put you right that's one extreme and then at the other extreme thinking everyone's opinion is equally valid um (laughs) which just doesn't make sense the people who even say that i don't think they would even say that if you presented them with something like i mean like silly examples like we talked about murder um but even things like women shouldn't be educated most people would probably say that's wrong but if they're the kind of person who says everything is relative and I just pop up in the room and say, aha, caught you. You think that's wrong, do you? Well, what, well, I do not accept that. I think everyone has the right to their own opinion. And if someone thinks that women should not be educated, then they're, then they're entitled to that opinion. And there's nothing that you can say that's wrong about them because otherwise you're an awful, judgmental, nasty piece of work. No, 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 no. Yes. Yes. So... Um... So, I mean, there's definitely a difference, isn't there, between um, uh, having the right to express an opinion and whether it is it can be considered that all opinions are right or wrong. Um, uh, yeah, and like you say, it's a, it's, it is a matter of um, perspective and it's a matter of context and it's a matter of culture. Um, but, you know, there, you know there's, there's opinions that just don't make sense to the majority of people yet can be considered absolutely fine for someone to express. You know, freedom of speech is really quite an important thing. Um, but, yeah, so I, think, I feel like we, we're veering off where you started with on this one. Do you want to, like, backtrack a little bit? I am getting to um, the, um, the fun bit of this episode, which is Ooh. going to be um, throwing some of the uh, Robert Greene's laws of powers at, at Dan, laws of power at Dan, I'll say that again. I am getting to the fun bit of this episode, which is going to be throwing some of Robert Greene's laws of power at Dan and seeing if I can trip him up and find one where uh, he actually behaves like that or uh, he's been caught out. But the reason that okay, I'm, okay. the reason I'm twisting my way through there is because there's, there's just, just since the last time we've record we recorded, I've had many many conversations and many many thoughts on this topic, which is why I want to return to it. And 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 for the the first thing that could not be more obvious is that every single time I've had a conversation, it's come down to this idea of relativism. And then the next thing that couldn't be more obvious is the significance of the um, the main personality traits um, in psychology. And it refers to five personality descriptors, and we mentioned it before. And essentially, there are actually 10, because as an individual, you will have five characteristics. And each one of those characteristics is your position between 
A at one end of the spectrum and B at the other end of the spectrum. So A plus B times five equals ten. Wait, what, <laughs> I love it. Wait, when, wait, I love wait, it wait. when there's maths maths in this podcast. <laughs> Shit, James, come on. So listen, let's. You know, with moments like this, you might want to remind the listener or the new listener uh, uh, of the big five personality traits. Do you want me to go for it, or are you? Yes, you... please. I'm sure you'll do it as well as you did last time. And if the listener has just listened to the previous episode right before this one, I'm sure they'll be thrilled to hear the same thing again. So but thrilled. For, for us, it's been a long time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, you know, uh, like uh, my uh, fire warden at work says, it's very important to be reminded of the basics, no matter how well you think you know them. Uh, so extroversion, agreeableness, openness to new experience, conscientiousness and neuroticism. So... so let me just go through that again with a, you know some kind of breathing in between it maybe because <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if I understood it. Extra extraversion, so outgoing and energetic uh, versus solitary or reserved. There's there's one of your little maths problems. You, yeah, but that's that's all I was interrupting to say. Extroversion is not just extroversion, it's extroversion or introversion. So one of the big five is extroversion or introversion, those being two different things. Well, and well, shit. Yes, yes, you're right, James. Thank you for that. Yes. That's why there's ultimately 10 of them. Ultimately, there is uh, 10 of the big five. The big, yeah. ten, the big ten. Uh, so extroversion. Obviously, we could probably say that the opposite of that was introversion. Yeah, one point to James. Uh, agreeableness. So oh, what's the opposite? What's the opposite? Disagreeableness. Maybe. Uh, uh, so friendly and compassionate versus critical or rational. Uh, I still think you can be friendly and rational as well as friendly and critical, as well as compassionate and critical and compassionate and rational. But we're not Well, that's talking... the whole point. No, because that's not a stupid thing to say. It's like with the introversion and extroversion. In certain situations, I am an extrovert. And in certain situations, I am an introvert. And there have been people who've only known me in either of those situations and it's almost comical when I like the, I'm sure there have been situations where sort of like on the same day or within the same week someone has said to me um, you need to speak up you're so quiet and then another person um, has said the complete opposite like you're so loud um, shut up and yes yeah, shut up yeah exactly yeah, and we we hope that you took the advice of both of them and just moderated your voice to a a reasonable level in you know all contextual situations. But um, who whoever does achieve that be the perfect human being. Um, so that was agreeableness. Um, not quite sure how your example there actually no, related to that one. Of, yes, you were no, at the I, first I gave an example one. Example of introvert. Yeah, agreeableness. Um, isn't is more like my propensity to say the thing that the other person wants to hear um which i've done i've gone to great lengths to 
to some extent get over this but there was there were certainly times especially in my 20s when I was trying to get a job and I was in job interviews and no matter what someone asked me I would say what they wanted to hear like you know are you a people person yes of course can you give an example yes of course because you want to hear an example and you don't want to hear an example of how I'm not a people person I mean I think most people are like that in interviews but that's, that's not a good example but but even with sort of like with housemates like let's say I broke the plate and I'm in a situation where someone is looking at smashed porcelain on the floor. And <laughs> in that moment, I feel like they don't want to hear that I broke the plate because they'll be angry about me breaking the plate. So is there anything I can say that stops them from being angry? Um, that's an un- or, or, or it could be the other way around. Like I know that they've broken the plate, but the last thing I want to do is accuse them of breaking the plate because that will make them unhappy that will just bring their emotions down into the negative realm. So I would never say things like that. So that's agreeableness. Whereas disagreeableness is like, for example, um, if we, if, if, uh, if you said, should we read out the, the big five? And I said, no, I don't think we should do that. That's a stupid idea. Why do you always have stupid ideas? That would be an example of disagreeable. Whereas I said yes, <laughs> yes you, yes you did, and I really thank you for that. Um, but but to go on with our list of five, openness to new experience. Are you inventive and curious, or are you consistent and cautious? Uh, those kind of areas, and then conscientiousness. Are you efficient and organised versus extravagant and careless? Which one do you think you are? Uh, Efficiently careless, I think. Uh, I'm uh, extravagantly careless. I'm, uh, yeah, that's that's. I think it's certainly clear to me that there's at least one of these where we don't need to analyse where on the spectrum Dan stands. Which well, it's that one, is it? I, yeah, we can be very black and white in our thinking with that one. I'm not sure how how does that apply to the openness to experience. Consistent and cautious. Oh, no, no, I've gone back to the other one. Sorry, James. Conscientiousness, yes. Efficient and organised versus extravagant and careless. Well, I'm definitely disorganised, but I wouldn't say I was careless. Um, am I extravagant? I don't think so. Am I efficient? Probably not. OK, so you were saying I was, I had a lack of conscientiousness, right? Yes, and too much agreeableness probably because a, a perfect example is if you promise to do something and then you promise someone else to do something, you didn't have the courage to turn down one of them and therefore disappoint someone and therefore seem like you were unable to deliver what they wanted. But then ultimately you let down both people and it also is correlating with your inability to conceptualise the reality of the future whereby something is basically impossible and with a little bit of logic that could be worked out. And it's not that the logic is beyond you, it's more that you don't want that to be the case. And so it's kind of a denial. Like, I want to please you, I want to please you, you both want me to please you simultaneously, I'm going to say yes to both of you, and then when it inevitably doesn't work, not that it's inevitable in your mind at this point, it's... uh, it, it was out of your control for various reasons. And then the other, each of those people, if they know you, they see past that and they just recognise that you were disorganised. And and I seem to have smuggled in 
let's talk about Dan's problems. <laughs> uh, wait, sorry. Let's talk about Dan's problems as perceived by James. Yes, correct. As, as they affect James. Yes, and I'm sure you've got a view on it, but, yeah, yeah. I mean, not everything is relative, and sometimes there's just a right view and a wrong view. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, and I, I guess that just it just goes to highlight, you know, seeing as you've been saying this same stuff to me for years, it just goes to, to highlight your, um, your efficient, organised, um, careful consistency. I am conscientious, yes. Now, neuroticism is the last of the big five personality traits, which would be sensitive and nervous versus resilient and confident. What have you got to say about that, you, you big gob? Well, firstly, um, neuroticism is therefore number nine in the five person. <laughs> so what's the opposite of neuroticism, do you think? Well, you, you, might, you, you might say resilience, but... Um, in in the mental health world, you, you you don't really have an opposite, but you could potentially say psychotic in a way. But um, I I don't know, like stability, like a sort of a um, a groundedness, a a, 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 real, a sort of sense of reality. But yeah, in the in the little in the little grouping it has here on Wikipedia, which is of course where I'm getting this all from, uh, <laughs> is. Um, sensitive and nervous versus resilient and confident so i would generally go with resilient um yeah that that that's what makes sense to me is it's like you are you know you can be neurotic and worried and overly concerned and have repetitive thoughts and high anxiety um or you know things can come up in your life and you have developed a sort of a resilient framework a kind of a confidence at tackling those worries and those concerns so they don't become neurotic they don't become uh um problematic um so you know neuroticism in essence is a sort of a personality trait it's, it's a anxiety worry jealousy guilt depression loneliness um self-consciousness being shy uh, all of those things go with it um um but but also there's a sort of a mental health definition you know of neurotic like mental disorders mood disorders anxiety disorders substance misuse obsessive compulsion those those kind of things um but what we're talking about in terms of the personality traits is that sensitivity to criticism sensitivity to environment and nervousness and fragility um and then the opposite being your 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 number 10 in the big five personality traits um you know, resilience, confidence, stability, groundedness. It was actually really interesting the way you um, presented that, and I want to respond to it, but I was hoping that you'd be really brief so that I could just say something sassy, which is, I wonder if Prince Harry just looks up these things on Wikipedia at the last minute on his <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but then you redeemed yourself by having just off the top of your head loads of insight on it, so it's fine. But the reason, the, the, the way you reacted was, seemed to me as if to say that unlike the other four, numbers one to eight, <laughs> that, yeah. with neuroticism, yeah. you're, you suggested everyone is basically born neurotic and the uh, quote-unquote better people learn their way out of it and they learn resilience through life experience. Whereas the way 
the, the impression I get of these personality types is that they are almost like building blocks like DNA of humanity and therefore people's personalities are largely a combination of them so everyone is somewhere between one and two three and four up to nine and ten and therefore that's how you get such a range of personalities and therefore in a situation where a bomb goes off one person screams the other person just calmly watches it gets their phone out and records it those you might think but hang on a minute these two people are both human beings if they were both robots they would do exactly the same thing because they would be programmed to behave the way a robot behaves and even when you look at the animal kingdom there's obviously personality within the animal kingdom but less so I think it's I don't know for sure but I would say that there is less personality in an insect than there is in a human and therefore when you like when kids do slightly evil things like I don't know you put an object in the way of an insect getting into its nest or whatever it is that you do like you 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 make an insect crawl to the end of a leaf and then you pick it up and put it back where it started again and all that sort of thing they behave in predictable ways you can kind of predict what the insect is going to do next because it doesn't have a a range of possibilities of how it interacts with the world whereas human beings because of the nature of our brains have a whole range of possibilities and therefore they are significantly less predictable even though they're not completely unpredictable but human beings are significantly less predictable than insects and certainly less predictable than this wooden table which for the entire duration of this recording so far has not got irritated and walked out of the room yeah exactly um, so something happened to my uh, sound there, James, and it, um, I don't know what it was. So I had about 50% of the words you said in that last sentence or two. So just summarise that for me again so I can naturally react to what you just said. <laughs> OK, I, I said that um, insects, I used the example of insects as, ha- as, as not having... Um, a range of these big five personality traits to the extent that you can kind of predict what an insect is going to do next like if you put a stone in front of an insect you know what how the insect is going to react whereas if you put a stone in front of a human being you don't know if it's going to throw it ignore it take a picture of it etc um and 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 reducing that to the most extreme i said that the table in front of me has not walked off in a huff during this recording because it has no personality and so with human beings um i see these five personality spectra as being a a, an almost unlimited starting sorry a starting point of an almost unlimited range of personalities And therefore, human beings, whilst not totally unpredictable, are very difficult to predict. Because if someone is neurotic plus conscientious plus not very introverted and not very extroverted, so we've got two extremes, one bang in the middle, and then is slightly conscientious, and then is slightly whatever the fifth one is, then that person is going to interpret everything they're presented in life uh, completely differently to someone who is at totally different points in that spectrum and if you do the maths to work out how many outcomes there are 
from the ten extremes and equally the five neutralities bang in the middle of all of them, then you just have a vast array of human behaviour that's, that's difficult to predict. And that's why... Um, well, that, that, that leads on to another conversation. But specifically, you said that for the last one, neuroticism, people are all born neurotic and then some of them learn their way out of it through life experience. Whereas my impression is that everyone is born with a position on each of these five spectra and that informs how they develop as a person not in not entirely because they're also influenced by the world and their um, experiences but I, I I'm under the impression that people are kind of born with a DNA of these big five do you disagree I think there's a sort of a a biochemical physiological scaffolding that's that's there and then our experiences and our parenting and our upbringing and our circumstances draws out some of these um uh, biochemical markers and either you know ingrains behaviors that perhaps uh, perhaps are genetic in nature or um or 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 gives alternatives so therefore you know learning comes into it and and parenting and you know social circumstance so i don't think we're all born neurotic and i don't think i said that so i'll have to listen back but i'm pretty certain i didn't say we were all born neurotic but we're all probably all born more vulnerable you know we're born vulnerable we don't know how to look after ourselves we don't know how to feed ourselves we can't physically feed ourselves and clean ourselves and keep ourselves safe so that we are more vulnerable and potentially you know there's we're born with maybe a certain kind of primal fear um of something which we then need to learn to deal with and 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 you know i think a lot of psychoanalysts would think that 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 primal fear of of death, I guess it is, or of, of being alone or of being uh, uh, isolated or unable to take care of ourselves is something that we deal with for the whole of our lives, no matter how good our coping skills are. So those of us that are neurotic potentially spend a lot more time in in our heads dealing with problems that are perceived to be in the here and now, but are actually more about that deep dark frightening place that's in every single one of us which is like fear of death or fear of being alone but i think everyone can learn and practice their way up and down any of these so for example if you're born extremely extroverted you can learn to to be introverted when it's appropriate and not always be extroverted and the same applies to anyway if if you're somewhere in the middle um you wouldn't do this but you could technically i suppose learn to always act in an extroverted manner even when it's inappropriate um but that is because um of many beliefs i have based on uh learning for about the thing the topics that we discuss in this podcast because if you can't change your personality then there is no such thing as self-help or therapy you're just born a fixed way nothing changes that and you die exactly the same way 
but which which I don't believe because there's all the evidence suggests that that's not true. But um, and it, and when people say people don't change, for example, as a as a which which would be an obvious counter argument to that, people don't change if they don't do anything about um, certain traits that were instilled either at birth or in childhood. And so for answers to all of this, people look at research in childhood psychology because you can look at, for example, twins who are two years old and one of them is conscientious and the other one is not. That doesn't mean that that one is going to be conscientious for life because because they're determined and the other one is never going to be conscientious, as I just said. But... It also suggests that it, they haven't, they were not born blank slates and inevitably became conscientious because of conscientious parents who they mimicked. It's more like they're kind of as genetically similar as a as human beings can test for, and therefore, when one turns out to have a different personality than the other in childhood as a twin, um, it suggests that these things are kind of assigned at birth. Okay, okay. Um, I think there's evidence to suggest, you know, like it's the big nature versus nurture, that, you know, conversation, that that both things are really important. Um, but also, you know, picking up on some of what you're saying is that these things can change throughout your life. Absolutely. They also change depending on the experiences, you know, even as adults, depending on the experiences that we go through. And, um, you know, the more traumatic those experiences the more likely is that we would become um uh, well the more likely is that that would affect our um pre-trauma nature and and how we respond and our behaviors and our thought processes and our thought patterns as well as for other reasons developing you know mental health uh mental illnesses or, or mental mental states that are not conduces or, or not paired with our usual or underlying personality so one one of the benefits of the idea Carl Rogers idea of unconditional positive regard is t- for example that I'm just going to keep this as simple as possible if I'm an extrovert and I like other extroverts and I surround myself with extroverts and then I meet an introvert and I'm irritated and it's almost like that introvert is demonstrating that from their opinion I'm wrong Um, unconditional positive regard recognizes the fact that introverts exist and that it's not exclusively correct to be an extrovert so there's that element where wherein there is the necessity for kind of relativism because the world is relative to an introvert differently to how it's relative to an extrovert and so you can't just say with absolute black and white thinking that I'm an an extrovert that is correct I surround myself with other extroverts because they are correct and now that this wrong introvert has come into the room they need to know that they're wrong and I need to get them out because I don't want something that's wrong wasting my time yeah but but just because someone is an introvert and in the room with an extrovert although of course there may well be some disagreement on quite major 
um, what would the word be, perceptions of the world and how to interact within it. You know, from my my experience, you know, the more educated a person is and i don't necessarily mean like schooled the more educated a person is the more they open their mind to the fact that um just because we think something it doesn't mean it's true that the, the more we realize that you know variety and difference makes up the the whole picture then the less likely they are to see an extrovert and go well, you're wrong because you are behaving in this way and i'm right because i'm behaving in that way it's quite a a basic um stupidity if you ask me to see something different to you and think that that is wrong because it is not you and I know that there's a lot of that in this world but I think we're talking to a listener who is more sophisticated than that so I just think that Carl Rogers doesn't allow for enough judgment because what you've just said is all very intelligent but but only to the extent that the person who recognizes that everyone's different and that people have different personalities and depending on your personality the world is perceived totally differently and then obviously they will come to different logical conclusions that you will and uh-huh. and you can't just um get tear your hair out in frustration that one of you has to be right and the other one has to be wrong but at the same time you can't just you, you can't, like I said at the start of this episode, you can't live your life assuming that everything is relative and nothing is um, is absolute because you just can't act. So there's there's an extent to which you have to um, draw a line, and I don't think that's I don't know if that was addressed to a satisfactory degree by Carl Rogers if he indeed thought of his lifetime work as being um, broadly within the philosophy of relativism you can criticize carl rogers for for being maybe a little bit too peace love and unity but at the same time um it's only in i think extreme circumstances where we're talking about the manifestation of like violence and hatred where you might struggle to be able to um uh unconditionally positive positively regard because um, because I, I think up to the point where someone's going to smack you in the face because you're a cunt because you're different to me, uh, you can probably manage as an intelligent human being to find positive in the human being that's opposite you, uh, even if you disagree with them, um, and to not you know consciously judge them and to try and find some of that unconscious bias in yourself. Um, but yeah, you know, he was the start of something, um, and 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 I think he he was like a springboard or or a, a leaping board for a lot of forward thinking wokeness. Well, I think this is a perfect opportunity to jump into our fun little game. In fact, I was just thinking, I wonder if um, rather than like just whizzing through a whole load of um, laws of power and seeing how Dan reacts. It mm-hmm. might even be a little feature that we mm-hmm. do again at the end of another episode. Um, I was thinking we could call the game something like Motherfucker or Father Mucker, but I haven't quite worked on it enough yet to see whether these ideas of power and control and Machiavellian manipulation are something that I do employ or something that I poo-poo and shoot to one side in favour of more positive 
and uh, constructive practices that perhaps still have the same eventual outcome, and maybe even incorporate some of the characteristics of what what do they call James laws of power? Yeah, may even incorporate some of the characteristics of the laws of power rules of how to behave to get what the fuck you want. Um, so yeah, like motherfucker. But the fact that they're called laws of power suggests that there's no room for interpretation or everyone's entitled to their own opinion and everything is relative. This is an absolute laws of power. There are 48 of them. They are factually correct. There's no room for interpretation. Listen and learn. <laughs> yep, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and you're not the kind of person who just accepts listening and learning, so therefore, mm. that's why we're doing this. I think we're going to start with number 13. What, what's happened to the 1 to 12? Have you just randomly plucked these out of the bag? Like, what about if I use my... Hang on, I think I've... Hang on, I've just got it... I've got it somewhere here in the drawer, James, my random number generator. So... We could use the random number generator, or have you a technique to this? Are you choosing your favourite laws of fuck it? Well, frankly, he has a technique and has chosen them in a particular order. So oh. I mean, maybe I could just maybe I could just do the same order that has already been chosen. It's totally up to you, but I just wondered whether you had come up with a technique. But now I've lost the page for thirteen. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing if you just go to wherever twelve is, and it'll be the next one. Law 13. When asking for help, appeal to people's self-interest, never to their mercy or gratitude. And it says, if you need to turn to an ally for help, do not bother to remind him of your past assistance and good deeds. He will find a way to ignore you. Instead, uncover something in your request or in your alliance with him that will benefit him and emphasise it out of all proportion. He will respond enthusiastically when he sees something to be gained for himself. Mm-hmm. Now, what's your question around that, James? What's your question? Do you naturally behave like that? Do you naturally behave not like that, but recognise the wisdom in these words as something that you wish you could learn and take on board? Or are you just going to say something wise and diplomatic along the lines of, well, if you behave ruthlessly like that, then it's not going to be positive for either of you but you have to recognize that uh people have to look after their self-interest and if you appeal to that then you're more likely to get something out of them so it's actually quite good advice as long as you're sensible about it yeah i mean your your final point there is probably one of the conclusions i would make but for myself personally uh, over the course of my life, you know, as a child, no doubt, you know, I wouldn't be able to think like that. However, I might use a technique similar to that to get what I wanted, you know, without really planning and plotting. Um, as a teenager, there would definitely be that use of um, kind of like, uh, well, you know, you're, you're going to get something out of this. So let's do this. Let's do this. You know, you know, without ever maybe even pointing out what it was that I would get out of this arrangement or this deal or this situation. So a very purposeful kind of manipulation, but perhaps without so much conscious awareness of that being a manipulation as an adult in a work environment it makes a lot of sense if you want to get someone on board with a project to point out 
how that project will benefit them and focus on that rather than focusing on the idea that someone is doing you a favour. So an example might be for me that I would be wanting people to come to one of my you know, educational study days. The more people I can get on that study day, the better it looks for me in terms of the outcomes you know, and the feedback and the evaluation. But of course, the person on that study day is getting a day, full day's worth of training, which would be for free. So if I'm trying to get a manager on board to send me three members of staff, although of course they've got to invest in that study day and pay for their staff to be off the... Um, out of the hospital environment, I would definitely focus on these three members of staff are going to be uh, ahead of the game. They're going to have advanced training in an area that is highly specialised from some of the best experts we've got in the locality. The training is completely free. All you need to do is sign up your staff to this. They're going to be back on the ward and they're going to be performing at a higher level than they were before. They're going to be motivated. They're going to be engaged in the topic. This isn't something that you can... You know, this isn't something that you can turn down. If not, I will just go next door to, you know, service B and, and they'll give me six people like that. There's no way I'm going to go in there and go, look, if your three staff come on my study day, that's going to look great for my stats and my evaluations are going to be raised. No way. Absolutely no way. I, 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 I really need this. No. What? What are you your what you're getting out of this is way more than what I'm getting out of it. I'm not even gonna mention what I'm getting out of it. Because at the end of the year, if I've convinced three hundred people to send their or three hundred staff to be sent on these courses, and I go to my boss and go, last year on just one of my courses, which I ran twelve times, I've got three hundred participants. Um, you know, I'm gonna look like a, a god amongst educational men. Um but those managers that sent those staff are going to know that their staff have benefited from it. They're going to know that the patients in the longer run benefited from it. I probably also could use, I don't know if it's a different technique, but, you know, the 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 emotional, not manipulate, the emotional sway of saying, you know, if you want to really, if you really want to hammer anything home in healthcare, you say, and at the end of the day, the patients are going to benefit from this. At the end of the day, this is improving patient care. At the end of the day, the patient pathway will be enhanced. And at the end of the day, the patient experience is what matters. So, you know, I would point that out when at the end of the day, I want to prove that my courses are well well signed up to. But yeah, so does that answer that law of power? Well, I suppose it's kind of like as a, as a, as, as a law, it's a negotiation tip and then it just depends on how good you are at negotiations and the thing that uh, comes to my mind is when we were looking at defense mechanisms in our little mini series on the unconscious and we looked at all the ways in which um, uh, people's defense mechanisms can cloud their judgment and cloud their understanding of themselves which means that the more I would assume the more your judgment of yourself is clouded by the, your defense mechanism, the less you're aware of the extent to which you're asking someone for something that is entirely to benefit you and not to benefit them at all, but you're pretending it's to benefit them. Where, or compared with um, someone who is... Uh, 
more aligned with the Buddha in their daily meditation practice and their wonderful self-knowledge and they've listened to all the episodes on the unconscious and really acted on it as opposed to just having it on in the background while they were cooking and they couldn't possibly know themselves better and they go into that negotiation and they're not clouded by either any confusion or um, the biases that would prevent them from successfully negotiating because the other person can just see exactly that they want something, don't know that they want it, and are using words of disguise to that are not enough of a disguise to cover the fact that they're blatantly saying, I just want this for myself, even though I'm saying something else, which is supposed to sound like I want to give you something that's for you. Yeah, I mean, I think your first point, you know, it's about negotiation, isn't it? I think the law of power, there's something in that, you know, title, the laws of power, that, that, that gives an idea that you're you've got control over another person. But when you, you think about it in terms of negotiation, there's a bit of give and take. Um, so In this case, I'd say it's exactly not a law of power. A law of power would be um, constructing an evil, oppressive regime whereby negotiation is impossible and everyone has to do what you say. And therefore, there's no negotiation. It's just power yeah, being but imposed. I, I Negotiation I, is the opposite of power, surely. No, no, no. I, I, I think you're talking about the, you know, maybe the, the, those would be called the laws of control because power, it, it, by definition, doesn't necessarily mean it's not negative. It's not necessarily um, for harm. It's not necessarily. It's not necessarily. It won't necessarily affect adversely and negatively the people that the power is exerted over think of um you know think think of covid almost so although you know you got a lot of what i would consider quite nutty people you know shaking their fists and storming the bbc and saying that having to wear face masks is an infringement of our human rights and that power has generally been you know the the government powers have been generally been exerted over the population for good you know like the laws the laws are powers that the police and the courts and the justice system hold that they can exert over us but generally it's for the greater good for the common good um whereas the you know law of control or the law of um you know laws that are used to abuse i think i think it's more than just power there's there's a there's something challenging on top of that the use of the power um but then surely that depends on whether on who's talking as well. Like if someone is psychopathic, then negotiation is basically just looking at other people as pawns to get them to do what you want. And the, the better your practice you are, the more you get those um, utilitarian pawns to do what you want. Yeah, yeah, okay. But the utilitarian pawns may well be doing the work of the greater good. Um, and as long as you know they're they, they still have some freedom within and some choice, then I'm not so sure. Well, that... not if they're pathetic. Like if you're really good at negotiating and they're pathetic, they lose and they come out 
and a legal contract is signed and they walk away thinking, hang on a minute, this doesn't feel right. And the other person's walking away thinking, feel, just knowing that they are superior, like that was easy. That person I was dealing with knows nothing about life. I know everything. I obviously won. Hopefully next time I'll be dealing with someone a little bit more intelligent because this time it wasn't even fun. Yeah, yeah. And then we're like looking at things like, you know, along the lines of survival of the fittest, aren't we? And, you know, the competitive nature of humanity and, and the, uh, the, what's it called? Uh, the, the, the sort of the, the common market, the, you know, the, the more you put in, the more you know, the more resources you've got, the more you can get out of life. Um, it, it, it's on to a broader conversation. I, I also found it amusing when you said um, power isn't always bad. I thought about the idea of um, uh, a women's empowerment movement and me getting angry and uh, protesting against it, saying, uh, how dare you try and turn women into dictators? It's bad enough that men are dictators and now your stupid regime is trying to ruin the world even more. <laughs> exactly, yep. So, wait, do you want to... You know, we're fast approaching the end of our allocated 90 minutes podcast. So um, what else you got for me there, James? No, I'm happy that, um, in retrospect, this has turned into an episode about um, relativism, although I won't give it a lofty title, so don't worry. It's, it, it, but it, it, I guess it's kind of inevitable because I've had similar conversations so many times over the past year that they've had time to settle and therefore, without even thinking about it, I've kind of steered this episode that way. You just used your power to make this podcast all about what you wanted to talk about. Well, it's because my opponent was too weak. I've tried disagreeability with you and it doesn't work. So, you know, I've gone with the allow you to think what you think you're thinking when actually it is I who has enabled you to think that due to some special power technique I have employed pre-recording. Also, I just realised um, usually James and I can see each other during these things. Um, and for this podcast, you know, we, we Skype and record individually. I'm in the private practice podcast studios in London. In fact, I'm in uh, the fourth private practice podcast studio in London. I have moved again to a more updated airy studio um i keep going up in the world um and james is there in marseille and we can usually see each other um only i have been reacting for the last 90 minutes because i can see him via skype as if he can see me but i've forgotten actually he's put his screen down so he can't see me at all so all the faces i've been pulling at you you actually haven't been responding to me at all Maybe, maybe I've been in a much better mood in this podcast without seeing your facetious faces. Mm-hmm. What a comeback. I mean, I, I honestly feel like uh, insert name of athlete in uh, insert name of event uh, with insert name of outcome uh, in that year, insert uh, year. Do you remember that? I, th- I mean, I'm sure your joke was hilarious, but I think I missed a little bit of it <laughs> just in the last few minutes. So if you feel that, um, you know, the 48 Laws of Power might be uh, interesting to you, get the book. Who's it by, James? It's by Robert Greene. But of course, you should only read the 48 Laws of Power if you're simultaneously reading On Becoming a Person by Carl Rogers or indeed A Way of Being by Carl Rogers. 
and to throw a um, 282-page spanner in the works, I've also been looking at a book, uh, well, reading a book, which is uh, uh, titled uh, Surrounded by Idiots, um, pre pre-titled The Runaway International Bestseller, Surrounded by Idiots by Thomas Erickson. It very much looks at the same kind of issues and ideas that we're looking at, you know, personality types, um, uh, nature versus nurture, um, contextual changes to personality and psychological mindset, you know, achieving goals, power, all this kind of stuff. It's a good one. It's the um, red, yellow, green, blue personality types. It's a... Quite a well-known book, uh, Surrounded by Idiots. Uh, so you might want to get that one as well, because I'm sure I'm going to make James get it. OK. I mean, I really enjoyed going through the chapters of the flow season. Um, it, it's a lot of effort from my point of view as the producer of the podcast to get Dan to have read the chapter and be ready to record. And then we get an, all the episodes to, of all the chapters together um, before I start releasing them, because... Otherwise, if we release five of them and then it's a year later we release number six, then no, no one has that kind of patience. So, um, but if you do read a book that you think you would like to volunteer in the same way that you did with the flow season, then it's going to be much more efficient if you read it and then get me to read it, which I will do and then plan episodes. Then if I say to you, Dan, I wish you could read this book. And then um, I then have to manage you reading the book as well as recording the episodes. Sorry, this isn't about Dan's problems, is it? This isn't a podcast all about Dan's problems. I need to um, I need to listen to him when he says that he doesn't want to talk about his problems on this podcast. Yep. Uh, also, I think the things that you uh, think of as my problems, I just see as personality traits. So I feel like problems are bigger things like, you know, bowel cancer or I, I don't know, um, you know, relationship breakdowns or um, family conflict, um, you know, large changes in life circumstances, global pandemics, um, financial issues, not knowing what to do with two cars, um, that kind of stuff. I mean, you sell the jazz and keep the cactus. No. On that note, uh, we'll see you next time on yeah. Private uh, Practice Podcast. We're sorry about that. We're sorry about the gap in um, uh, broadcasting, and, and we, we will endeavour to get together as frequently as we can to just, just really, just to keep up with Prince Harry and his high-level, in-depth, world-leading mental health podcast. Uh, and from me, Daniel P. Brown, it's goodbye. And from Marseille, Preston goodbye. From the ordinary boys, Preston 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 from the ordinary boys. <laughs>